This is um, the end of Pastor Appreciation Month, and on behalf of Joel and myself, I want to thank this church for not only taking care of us with little gifts and cards, even kids with bracelets and, and notes and drawings, but all year round, it is truly a blessing to be able uh, to be supported by this church and the generosity of God's people and to have the privilege of ministering without concern of financial needs and to just be able to study, love people, and, and minister. I recently saw a commercial that showed numerous images of surfaces that we touch. There was hands, there were doorknobs, there were tables and silverware, and there was playground equipment, and the advertiser's point in the commercial was to highlight the reality that germs are everywhere, and we need their product in order to stay safe. Ironically, the concern for uncleanliness or impurity or defilement is not a new one. Our passage this morning involves Jews who were purifying themselves to participate in Passover. Ceremonial impurity was the concern of every devout Jew because they understood that that impurity would come from cultivating their own food. It would come from caring for their animals. It could even come through diseases and even their own bodies and certainly through the dead. Our passage in John chapter 11 opens with the Jews arriving in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it was not at all uncommon for these folks, as they arrived for this great and glorious feast, to come even up to a week early in order to ceremonially cleanse themselves in the temple so that they could participate in the Passover. But as we see in John 11 and verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We're also given another tidbit of information as you look at verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, this is interesting because the law required every Jewish male to be there. According to Deuteronomy 16.16, this is one of the prescribed feasts of the year that every Jewish male had to attend. So why would they be asking if Jesus would be there or not? The answer comes to us in verse 57. Because the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What we see here in this passage, as we begin our study through John chapter 11, verse 55, all the way down into chapter 12 and verse 36, we see some ominous signs. As everyone is preparing for Passover, these signs are popping up. The crowds have revealed the increasing danger that Jesus faced. After all, the, the hit is out for him. He's got a target on his back. Will he come or not? Let's see as we look to see who else is making preparations. Follow along as I read from John chapter 12, verse 1 through 11. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many therefore took, or Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from uh, pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews we're going away and believing in Jesus. Now, we don't just have an introduction to some storm that's brewing in verses 55 and 57 of chapter 11. We see it flows even into chapter 12. Jesus has made plans by securing his lodging, as we're told in verse 1. And I don't have to tell anyone here how crowded Rapid City gets when Sturgis Bike Week is going on. I looked it up. I wasn't here then, but in 2015, the numbers were around 750,000 people in the hills. This year, it was just over 458,000. And I can remember back in 2012 when Indianapolis was the host city for the Super Bowl. So the city that we lived in at the time is called Anderson, and it was 45 miles away from the stadium. And people in Anderson were renting out their homes for the million-plus people who came to the Super Bowl. Now, if you took what Indianapolis experienced with the Super Bowl and Sturgis's biggest week in 2015 and you combined them, you would still not equal what Josephus records as two and a half million people flooded into Jerusalem. I mean, it was packed. Wall-to-wall people. And this is pre-hotels and conference centers, okay? So where do all these people stay? Well, they sleep in the city parks. They sleep in the, the vineyards. They, they rent rooms off of those residents in Jerusalem. And when the city is overflowed beyond its capacity, they spill out into the neighboring villages, which is why we find Jesus making arrangements to stay with his friends in Bethany, a city two miles outside of Jerusalem. This was a big deal. And so here's Jesus, who is a hundred plus miles from his home in the north in Capernaum. He is staying at the home of his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then we see Mary and Martha are also making plans. And they display, their plans show generosity and love. As you look at verses 2 and 3, Martha is using her gift of hospitality, something we read of in Luke chapter 10. She's hosting this large gathering. Her house is overflowing with Jesus and his 12 disciples and whomever else happened to be with him 
And so she is throwing a big party and a dinner. And then Mary, as we look at verse 3, she gives Jesus a gift that was worth a year's salary for a day laborer. She had been saving this gift up, and she breaks open this bottle. She pours out this expensive, fragrant perfume, and this, o- this lotion, this ointment, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. Taking the form of the lowest servant in the household, she washes her Savior's feet, and then she dries it with her hair. Breaking culture of a woman letting down her hair in the presence of men, she wants to express her deep and undying gratitude to her Savior. Taking the most expensive thing she had, she spent it all on Jesus. Point of application, very simple one. Love doesn't count the cost. What do I mean by that? I'm not trying to say that love is foolish or thoughtless. You know, I love my girlfriend, and so I'm going to just spend, not my girlfriend, your girlfriend. I'm speaking metaphorically. You got that, right? Uh, I'm just going to spend whatever because this is a love that's going to last. You're in high school, you know? Spring love. Uh, I'm not talking about this. We see in Mary's own example that she did not hesitate. Whether this was premeditated or not, there was no reluctance on her part. She's showing generosity to the Savior who has loved her. And we see that this is a small mirror of the greater love that God has for us, His people, who loved us while we are yet sinners and sent His Son to die for us. And what we see in both of these women is that their love for Jesus wasn't producing calculated stinginess. What's the bare minimum I can give to Jesus? It produced a spontaneous generosity. And then all of that gets brushed aside by John as he quickly pivots to a from the back of the room. What a waste. And you hear Judas. A protest that fakes generosity by a thief who did not love Jesus. And what does Judas say? It's for the second time in John's gospel that we meet him. The first time was back in chapter 6 and verse 71. And both times, John adds an additional comment, a note about Judas. Here, it's that he would betray Jesus. Back in chapter 6, 71, there's this tense. John tells us that Judas was going to betray Jesus in chapter 6 and verse 71. Here in chapter 12 and verse 4, we are told that Judas was about to betray Jesus. I think what John is doing in that subtle little shift of language is he's, he's moving the storyline story line along. The, the time of this betrayal is getting closer and closer. Judas presents himself as one who's concerned about the poor in verse 6. Why was this ointment sold for 300 denarii? And now, he did the math pretty quick. He was the one that held the bag of all the money that was given to the ministry. And so he's calculating, okay, we got 365 days in our years. How did he get 300? Well, he knows that there's 52 weeks. And 52 weeks has 52 Sabbaths. 
And he takes those away. And some other Jewish holidays and days of rest where you would not work. And maybe it's an allotment for sickness over the course of the year. And he has so quickly calculated 300 days worth of wages was just poured out on feet and the soil. And man, that's just wasteful. The poor could be helped. His response demonstrates a hostility because he was not concerned about the poor, as John makes clear. He was a thief, and he would steal from this bag often. His response is a hostility born out of greed, out of guilt, and out of bitterness. Greed, because he was a thief. Guilt, because he knew he was a thief. And bitterness, bitterness because he did not love Jesus. And this was a missed opportunity for him. And I wonder if we, at times, as Christians, can get a little frustrated when we see a lavish act of love, and we, too, can complain about that. Maybe it's jealousy when someone starts in a game before us as a high schooler, college student. Maybe it's at work and someone else got the promotion that you've been working for and they have been fast-tracked, it appears. They've only been with the company a year or two and you've been there longer and there's jealousy. Or maybe it's even on a more petty level of You want the newest iPhone or Samsung or whatever, and your friend got it. Or they got a new car. Someone just bought a house, and you're living in something that you would love to get out of. The question is, are we people who are known as being frustrated when our authority or our power is not stoked and stroked, and it is the counsel of another person that's being followed rather than our own? Or when we see something beautiful and good that ought to be celebrated that's taking place in the life of another, do we grumble? Do we covet? Do we declare how unworthy that person is to receive such things? Well, you notice Jesus' response. Look at it in verse 7. Repeat it, read it again. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have... Uh, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I think Jesus' response here is surprising on so many levels. First of all, Jesus shushed Judas rather than exposing him. Now, we are told, John tells us that Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was a thief, and he was stealing money. He had, he had the keys to the kingdom, as it were, as regarding the purse, So he must have been gifted with finances and therefore entrusted with this. But don't be deceived in thinking that God didn't know, that Jesus didn't know what Judas had been doing. The disciples learned about it after the fact, which is why John was very intentional about making this point clear. This is a bum, okay? He is a bum, and we are going to see it full fleshed out soon. But you know this, we who are writing this to you, Jews who are scattered around the Roman Empire, understand this. He did these things because of his heart. And we saw that after the fact. It was lost on us in the moment. But that doesn't explain Jesus' grace, does it? Would you, given the opportunity 
to expose your enemy, would you take it or leave it? To confront someone and to say for all to hear, this is their true character. Know this from this day forward, not to be trusted. We see our Savior simply hushing him. Friends, let me just say, there is so much that we can learn from Jesus, even by his interactions with his enemies. He attached Mary's act to his burial in verse 7. Touching a dead body would have defiled a person, and especially during a season in which everyone is trying to purify themselves for Passover. I, I wonder, and I couldn't find an answer on this, does Mary's anointing of Jesus take on an even greater significance than just he went to the cross with this smell on him? You normally prepared a body for burial after that body was dead. Not before. And so what does it say that this woman has touched that one who will soon die and is anointing him for his burial? We see the symbolism there. But this whole idea of uncleanness, that she was not defiled. Paul might help us a little bit by declaring that Jesus took on our uncleanness and purified us when he writes in Titus 2.14 that Jesus is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. Jesus goes on to say very quickly that his time is short in contrast to the, the persistence of the poor. You will always have the poor with you, but I, my time is here. It's short. It's passing. What she has done is appropriate. Leave her alone. And what we see here is this sobering drawing to a close in John's gospel. You see, back in John chapter 2, Jesus' public ministry began at a most joyous occasion. It was a wedding. Everybody's happy at a wedding. Well, most everybody, right? It's stressful. It can be very stressful. But look at how Jesus' public ministry is closing. It's another social event. However, the mood is quite different, as one commentator noted. At Cana, Jesus and the disciples had intended in the anticipation of their newly launched mission, the bringing of the sparkling new wine of the kingdom to the tired, insepid waters of Judaism. The mood was buoyant, even exuberant, but here the tone is significantly different. Dark, heavy clouds are massing on the horizon. There is a burden in the heart of Jesus. The celebration is muted. Even though Passover was a joyful experience, Jesus is talking about burial rather than renewal. But it doesn't stop here. The pace of this passage is very fast. If you, if you read through it this week, you're just like, wow, there's just so much stuff here. Why can't we slow it down? Why take 39 verses and try to cover all that? Well, we may not get there. It's ambitious, I know. But I think John's writing and he's condensing all of this in a short place because he wants us to feel the angst, 
the energy. He wants us to be kind of like, oh my word, this is going on. Oh no, 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 here's another fire to put out. And then here's another one. And he wants us to move because the pace is so energetic. And we see that in verse 9. Because word gets out that Jesus, two miles outside of Jerusalem, is in fact in Bethany. And not only is he in Bethany, but he's in Lazarus' house. And so now the crowds are flocking out of Jerusalem to see Jesus in this neighborhood. And they don't just want to see Jesus, they also want to see Lazarus, this guy they've heard about. The dead guy who's now alive. And that's puts Lazarus in danger, as verses 10 and 11 warn us. And so the dark clouds of preparation for what should be a great and glorious feast, are, are, they're, they're giving us a hint, a shadow, that not all is well. These leaders are threatened by Lazarus's very existence, and they have given orders to arrest Jesus. The people hearing these words are on high alert. Will Jesus come? And Jesus himself is hinting that his death is near as he welcomes the gift of Mary. And unbeknownst to Lazarus, he has now got his own most wanted poster in the halls of the Jewish elites. And this increasing tension is what makes what happens next all the more remarkable. So let's read verses 12 through 19. We're told the next day. Again, the next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that those things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so here we see, in the midst of all of the, what looks like a bad day for Jesus is soon coming, defying conventional wisdom, Jesus entered Jerusalem publicly. And he did so to the shouts and the celebration of the hopeful and the curious. We've sung songs this morning that speak of the one who would betray Jesus with the kiss, of the cross that Jesus went to, of the celebration of our King who reigns forevermore. And there is nothing and no one who can take that authority and that power from him. Well, this is, this is a small uh, understanding of what these people experienced on that day. Judea's most wanted man isn't smuggled into the, sick, into the city under the cover of darkness. It's not like Robin Hood in the cartoon where he's wearing a disguise to go shoot at the tournament and nobody knows who he is. 
He's not disguised as a beggar. He, no, our Jesus, even with this bounty on his head, he rides a donkey through the main gates while the crowds make way for him and shout praises over him. Did you know that in two days, many Christians are going to celebrate the 506th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Thesis? A document nailed to a a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. It contained a series of propositions for debate between the former Catholic monk, monk, Luther, and the church regarding the selling of indulgences, the teaching of penance, that you can work your way to salvation or you can buy salvation through money and many other corruptions with the church. He nailed that document to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. That act would put Luther right on the end of a barrel. Put him right in the crosshairs of the Catholic Church. And months later, in 1521, or years later, he stood trial for his crimes against the church. The political authorities acting at the behest of the Pope, Leo X, they examined Luther. They urged him to recant his heresy or suffer the consequences. And Luther asked for a day to consider his response. And the next day as he returned before the tribunal, he made this statement, we're told. Unless I am convinced by testimonies of the Scripture or by clear arguments that I am in error, I cannot withdraw, for I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Amen. Now, we're also told not only did Luther say these bold and brave words, but he did so in spite of great fear. Let us not think for a moment that bravery is not the absence of fear. In fact, bravery and courage, I would say, is standing in defense of the gospel or in standing in defense of what is right, leaning into it in spite of your fear. And here is our Jesus our king, our captain, knowing that this act is going to lead to that cross and he does not shrink back from it. Friends, if you have this view of Jesus as being a milquetoast kind of person where he just kind of smooths out all the imperfections of people and he can slimy his way into cracks and crevices and he really has no spine or backbone. He's just loving and good. He's just a warm, fuzzy, stuffed animal. That is not the Jesus of the Gospels. He's already cleansed this temple once in John's Gospel. He ran people out who had turned the court of the Gentiles, a place for all the nations to come and pray. They had turned it into such a crazy bazaar with shops selling this and shops selling this and currency exchanges and money, all this stuff. He ran them all out so that real worship could be restored. This is the Jesus who says, I'm going to go and do the Father's will. The crowds 
give their exclamation of praise. And what we see here is a reminder of Old Testament passages that are being quoted. Their their shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And again, I want to quote from a commentary. It says this, that as they came out and expressed these words, there is a part of the celebration of Passover that included the waving of palm branches. And from the time of the Maccabees, palms had been recognized as the symbol of the Jewish state. They were on their currency, and they were recognized as a symbol of the Jewish state. And the action of the crowd is testifying what? It's showing us that they have this real deep-seated, revolutionary, nationalistic, patriot, political point of view. They believed that Jesus was there to get rid of the Romans. That he would do what what some of their grandparents had told them about. The Maccabeans 120, 130 years before. Whether it was Judas Maccabeus. Or whether it was one of his offspring by the name of Simon. Who had defeated the Syrians at Acre. And when he returned to Jerusalem to a hero's welcome, they did the same things. They threw palms down on the ground. And they praised him. And they proclaimed, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So this isn't a religious thing. It's the blurring of religion and nationalistic aspirations. And this is why we as a church have to be very careful that we don't buy into the same thing. And I know where I'm speaking right now. I know that right down the road is a very, very large armory for the South Dakota National Guard. And beyond that is a huge base for the Air Force. And I'm saying, thank you for your service. I wish I could have served if God would have had other plans. I would have served to defend this country. But our home is not this world. This church is to stand with an understanding that while we can be thankful for the good freedoms that we have in this country, that we are not all about making sure that there's some revival of the USA as much as there is a revival of the gospel and an affection for the gospel. We cannot conflate, we cannot bring these two together, political aspirations with God's work in the kingdom. This is the problem that the Jews had. They are celebrating, and they're saying all this languages. The the phrase that comes from the Psalms that are being quoted here in the Hillel is Psalms 118, or 113 to 118 is a section of the Psalms that were sung daily during this feast. And when the Hosanna, when they got to the part of Psalm 118 and verse 25, which they spoke of Hosanna, all the men, all the male worshipers would wave their bunch of branches and their palm branches. And so this is the environment Jesus is coming into the city on. People believe, literally believe, the greatest political leader they have known in the last millennia is walking through the gates, riding through the gates. Their hopes are to be done with Rome once and for all. And Jesus, Jesus, we're told in verse 16, before we get to Jesus, uh, we're told that this theological significance was lost on the disciples. They too have been caught up with all the patriotic zeal and celebration. 
And I think that as Jesus rose in, this is my opinion, this isn't Bible, I think Jesus' attitude was somber as he entered Jerusalem. I don't believe he was smiling and doing the parade wave and throwing out candy. And it was all, yeah, yeah, you know, trying to stoke their enthusiasm. I believe that Jesus was somber because in spite of his teaching, the people did not understand the real purpose of his coming. He refused to be the king they wanted because he was determined to be the king they needed. They didn't need him to throw off Rome. They needed him to throw off and deliver them from an even greater oppressor. It is the sin that was in their own hearts, a sin that would lead to death. This is what they needed from Jesus, but they didn't know that. He came to save sinners, not to establish a physical kingdom. And in spite of him telling people this over and over, my kingdom is not of this world, there were still the aspirations that somehow he would be what they wanted him to be. They could force things. They would force his hand, a showdown with the Romans. Perhaps this may even be an excuse or an explanation for Judas's betrayal. Well, this is what's going on in the minds of so many people. But as you look at verses 17 through 19, we're, we're given an explanation of what the crowds were thinking. First, in verse 17, we're told that the witnesses, the very people that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, had never stopped talking about it. They were telling everybody what they had seen. I mean, it would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? You knew a guy was dead. You were there with the family when he died and when he was buried. You've been there with the family as they're mourning. And then Jesus walks over and says, roll the stone back. Lazarus, come forth. And he does. That would shock and awe anybody. And they had not stopped talking about this. And so now in verse 18, we have an introduction to a whole new group of people. It's the crowds who had been hearing these stories And they came out to meet Jesus. So you have people who are impressed with Jesus, and you have people who are curious about seeing him. Maybe they had heard other things, and now at the feast, he is there. And this is my chance to see him. Who organized that? You ever think about that? I mean, we just read through this triumphal entry, as it's noted in our Bibles, if we've got those little headings. Who, who, where was the planner? Rick, did you throw something like this together to orchestrate all that? I mean, there's who planned to have a parade on a day when there were millions of people ebbing in and out of the city? Who, who orchestrated that? Why didn't they get credit in the Bible? Why wasn't there a master planner that was done behind it? Wasn't there a funding for an event? We are given no evidence that anyone was told exactly what to do. Nor do we read of anyone orchestrating this event and calling people, meet at the gates at this specific time. No, how did all this happen? It's because individuals took initiative. People who couldn't unsee a dead man being raised to life, they had to tell people what they had seen. They weren't being asked. They were telling people. And those who heard this miraculous and incredible story had to come and see. 
Friends, do you realize this is like the gospel? This is evangelism. Taking the things that we've experienced from God's grace and to just take it and tell people about it. Like, you don't need a license to do that. You don't have to ask permission to do that. That's just on us as Christians to take the gospel to the nations. Now, it is true that they were far more excited about Jesus' miracle than his message. And it's also true that their hopes for Jesus as a Messiah clouded their ability to truly understand who he was as a Savior. And yet, we ought to be rebuked as Christians by their spontaneity and their enthusiasm. As misguided as it was, we have a greater truth. We know the full story. So it's not just that this guy raised a dead person, but it's that this guy loved sinners like us and gave his life for us. And then he didn't just save us to kind of set us over in a corner, but he's actually using us to help other people. That he's forgiven me over and over and over again in my battles against sin. This is the God that we're supposed to be telling people about. This is the grace that we should be excited to share. We are the spiritual Lazaruses that Jesus has raised. And I would just encourage you, South Canyon, shouldn't that glorious reality motivate us to tell others about Jesus? I remember hearing one preacher say, you need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. And the value of that is you're constantly being reminded that you were a sinner who needed the gospel. And it doesn't just leave us there on the hook to kind of like beat ourselves up about what a bum we are and how wicked we are, but the gospel also says God loved you and gave himself for you. And it promises that all of our sins have been washed away, cleansed by his sacrifice. That's why we need the gospel, because it's hope for us who are struggling against sin. It's a comfort to us who are wrestling with, are we really, can we be forgiven? And it's a reminder that we too were dead in our sins and trespasses and needed this. And this, this means that God's figured it all out from the, end, uh, the beginning to the end. There's nothing that's outside of his scope of understanding. And that should motivate us to tell others we should be the ones who are inviting the curious to come and see. To see and hear about the Jesus that's being proclaimed in our Sunday gatherings. To see and hear about Jesus who's at work in the gathering of his people. Lazarus functions as a thread that holds this entire passage together. We're told about him being there with Jesus in verses 1 and 2. Verses 9 and 11, we're told that the crowds were coming to see Lazarus. And then in verses 17 and 18, we are told that Lazarus is now the, um, he is also the reason why the crowds met Jesus at the gate. They wanted, they'd heard the stories and they wanted to see. I think John is using this singular event, the fact that Lazarus was dead and that he is raised again to galvanize Jesus' enemies while simultaneously drawing the crowd's admiration and interest. So he's like, 
He's like that beautiful combination of you can't look away and that bothers you. And then other people are so attracted to it, like a moth to a flame. And so I I would just say this. You and I as Christians, we gather like this once a week. But throughout the week as we are scattered around Pennington County and others, Meade County, don't be surprised when God uses you in your community, whether that's in your school with your classmates, whether that's where you work or where you volunteer in the community, don't be surprised that those who become followers, who are known as Jesus followers, are are going to both attract opposition and they're also going to attract interest in in who this Jesus is. You You may be suffering at work because of your testimony. People see you reading your Bible and they mock you for it in the break room. Or you're told you can't share the gospel while you're at work because you are a government employee and that's, that's a, a miscarriage of breaking down church and state and all these arguments. And you may, be, you may be suffering some kind of scrutiny from people because they know you are a Christian. Find comfort in identifying with the suffering of your Savior. To be treated like Jesus, man, what a sweet thing. Because people are seeing Jesus in you. I mean, if you're being treated because you're a jerk and people are treating you poorly for it, well, you deserve that, right? We all know that. But when you are living so that people see Jesus and they are not liking that and so they're taking it out on you, man, you need to wear that like a badge of courage. You are so closely identified with your Savior that they're actually mistreating you because of it. What a joy. Don't shrink away from that. Yeah, I know it's hard. I've been there. I know it's hard. But that's why we come together, to be encouraged in these things. To know that not only will people be not liking us, to put it mildly because of this, but to also remind ourselves that is also going to raise the interest of people who are interested in hearing more. They're watching your life. How you handle this, how you respond to this, will raise opportunities for questions. And as we come to the end of verse 19, we see that these exasperated, exasperated enemies of Jesus are powerless to do anything. This drama unfolding before their eyes, they're wringing their hands, they're whining about losing control of the situation, and I think John wants us to kind of smile at this. They are powerless to stop Jesus from doing God's will. The people thought they had a king who was going to free them from slavery to Rome, who was going to once again cleanse the temple and, and re-inaugurate the greater kingdom of David. And Jesus says, I am here for far greater purposes than that. I'm here to save you from your sins. We're going to close here today, and I just want us to think about this passage as we, we take a moment to reflect on what we've seen and heard. We've seen We've seen examples of how people all have the same calendar in front of them and they plan their time differently. Yet Judas, 
who's always trying to get something for himself. you got the, the religious leaders who are trying to shut things down. And you have glimpses of people who are just so enthralled with Jesus. They're just like, whatever, whenever, however, my life is yours. Don't lose sight of that. Let, let the love of Christ dwell richly in you, Paul writes. But Jesus, we see in the example of Mary, one who understands the depravity from which they were saved produces a generosity and an exuberance over Jesus. That ought to be us. And this is the opportunity for each of us to hear the reason that Jesus came. The Holy God sent His sinless Son to save sinners like you and I. And to save us from what? Something far worse than if China were to take over the U.S. or Russia. Something far worse than if a nuclear bomb were to be dropped on us. Because these things only touch us here and now in this life. Jesus came to save us from an eternal damnation and separation from this holy God. He has saved us because he went to the cross. He was not cowarded and pushed. He was not sidetracked by uh, the opulence and the offers of the crowds. He could have gone a hundred different directions. He stayed true to his Lord, his Father, so that he could give a real promise of eternal life to you and I. And I hope that you will hear that with the full intent of an invitation that Jesus wants to save you you. Lord, we pray that you would speak and that we would listen to your spirit as you speak. We thank you that you were the king we needed rather than the king we wanted. And now, Lord, let those of us who rejoice in this great salvation live lives that demonstrate the profound gratitude, thankfulness, and joy of our salvation. We exalt over you to be known as your children and to be born again, to be given the promise of eternal life through what you've done. Lord, we hold on to that with full strength and with full faith, and we thank you that that you are holding on to us. And we ask your blessing on the word and on this gathering. In Jesus' name, amen.